From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. All over the world, governments are abandoning fossil fuels, like coal and gas, and embracing renewable energy. In our region, more and more of our key trading partners have announced plans to become carbon neutral, leaving Australia isolated and economically vulnerable. Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on the new climate policies sweeping Asia and how Australia is already being left behind. Mike, four months ago, China's President Xi Jinping addressed the United Nations and made a, a pretty stunning speech that at the time, I think, flew under the radar somewhat. So can you tell me about what he said? Well, uh, it did fly under the radar, I guess, because everyone was focused on COVID. Mr. President, we humans are battling COVID-19. What he said was that China would... Uh, go to net zero carbon emissions by 2060. We aim to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. We call on all countries to pursue innovative, coordinated, green and open development for all. Which is huge, you know, when you consider that China is currently, you know, far the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world. Humankind should launch a green revolution and move faster to create a green way of development of life, preserve the environment and make Mother Earth a better place for all. So um, it was a very big announcement, took everyone by surprise. And that obviously has huge implications for Australia, given how reliant we are on the Chinese buying our coal and gas exports. But the thing is, China is far from the only country in our region that is announcing steps to become carbon neutral. OK, so tell me more about our region. What other countries are doing this, are, are moving towards becoming carbon neutral? Well, there's been, there's been a bit of a flood in the past six months. Japan is set to go carbon neutral by 2050. Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga has made the pledge in his first policy speech since taking office. Uh, about six months ago, the government of Japan announced that it would be carbon neutral by 2050, and promptly thereafter, Japan's biggest electricity utility announced that it was uh, it was also committing to net zero and would not be using thermal coal at all by the early 2040s. They say Japan would have to have half of its electricity come from renewable sources by the year 2030 in order to make this happen. Again, ambitious, but not completely unachievable. On the other side of the Sea of Japan, Japan, South Korea, another of our big export markets, something similar happened. South Korea has said it will shut down 30 coal power plants by 2034, in line with the country's ambition to cut greenhouse gas emissions. October 28, the president committed to achieving carbon neutrality by 2050 and pledged to replace coal power generation with renewable energy. That pledge comes just two days after Japan made the same commitment. In both these countries, the power companies and the steelmakers have followed suit. Taiwan is moving steadily toward its target of having 20% of its energy supplied by renewables by 2025. In Taiwan, it has its own ambitious plan for renewables. India at the moment hasn't come on board with a 2050 target, but it is widely expected to do so in the near future. People were telling me possibly within days.
So you mentioned, obviously, the decision by China, the impact that that would have on Australia's economy, given how reliant we have been on them buying our coal. But can you tell me more about the impact that the decisions that these other countries are making will be? Well, people assume often, I think, that, that China is the big one. It's not, actually. Japan is is the biggest consumer of Australian coal and gas, followed by Korea, um, followed by China, and then after that, Taiwan. So essentially, these make up the lion's share, you know, three quarters, 80% of the entire market for these products. When when you look at our exports of thermal coal, which, which are the most immediately at risk of being replaced, um, they were worth $23 billion in 2019, and Japan accounted for 43% of that. So that gives you some idea of the, the amount of money at stake here and the amount of export revenue Australia stands to lose. Mike, you're talking about the loss of potentially 80% of our export market for fossil fuels. That's presumably going to have huge repercussions for the economy. It's big, uh, and there's no doubt that it will have an impact, and probably quite quickly. First, because the markets are disappearing, and second, because the money people who fund and insure and invest in these operations are pulling out. There's an absolute stampede of banks, insurers, pension funds, super funds, sovereign wealth funds all sorts of other fund managers divesting themselves of fossil fuel assets. One of the people I've spoken to for this story is Tim Buckley, and he's a former head of equities research with Citicorp, so, you know, he knows his way around this stuff. You know, I track global financial institutions' policies on coal, and we've expanded that in the last six months to tracking climate change and namely fossil fuels. And he has a list of more than 160 globally significant financial institutions that have pulled the pin on fossil fuels. And and that list, I might add, is literally growing by the day. It's major financial institutions, it's major corporates, it's major utilities, it's major steel companies across Japan and Korea. They're just coming one after another. I spoke to Buckley twice, a couple of days apart, and in that time he'd added two big new entries to the list, two US pension funds that had dumped $40 billion in fossil fuel holdings. So that's how fast the money's coming out. I also spoke with Tim Flannery, who's the chief counsellor at the Climate Council, and he gives it about five years, he reckons, before major companies in the the sort of dirty energy sphere begin to fall over in large numbers, maybe less. Five years, that is a, that's a fairly short timeline. That is a very short timeline. And, and then, of course, you take into account, you know, what's happening in America, where Joe Biden is now committing to net zero by 2050. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Since his inauguration, he's issued an absolute blizzard of executive orders across all arms of government relating to what he calls the existential threat of climate change. It's, uh, that's why I'm signing today an ex- executive order to supercharge our administration's ambitious plan to confront the existential threat of climate change. The first order I'm signing is this next one, restoring trust. and this last one is the President's Council on Advisors on Science. So, um, you know, we're seeing around the world something of a space race, I think, to, to develop and apply clean energy. And, and these countries aren't doing it just because it's good for the climate. You know, they're doing it because there are jobs in it and very, very big bucks in it. Right, so where is Australia in all of this then? Because it sounds like we're being left behind while large parts of our region and some of our biggest allies forge ahead on climate policy. 
the Australian federal government is way behind the rest of the world in our lack of, of ambition for emissions reduction. And so we find ourselves increasingly isolated in our pro-coal position. Asleep at the wheel is the way um, uh, Tim Buckley put it to me. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points with links to full articles from a range of sources. Get the news you need to your inbox every weekday morning with Post. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Mike, we're talking about the countries worldwide, including those who, who are our major trade partners, who are entering in agreements to, to reach zero emissions targets. But I want to talk a little bit here about why it is that Australia is not doing the same. Is it just politics? Well, um, politics and vested interests, but vested interests, of course, feed into politics. Uh, I mean, the, the Morrison government narrowly won the last election largely on the basis of the result in a, in a small number of electorates in which the coal industry is a major employer, ran this massive scare campaign against Labor's climate policies. He wants to say, see you later, to the SUV. But what Bill Shorten wants to do, without seemingly even understanding what his policy does, is trying to drive people into these decisions. Labor, it's the bill Australia can't afford. Authorised by Ahurst, Liberal Party of Australia, Canberra. So... That was very significant in winning it for the government. It scared a lot of people in those seats. So they, they won enough to assume government. They almost won another one, which is the electorate of Hunter. That's a coal seat in New South Wales. And there, the sitting member is one Joel Fitzgibbon, second-generation Labor man. He has held it for a long time, and he almost didn't. He, he suffered a huge swing. Uh, it was almost 9.5%. And that went towards the Nationals. So after the election, Labor dumped its 45% target and, and last week they dumped the architect of that target, Mark Butler. So um, that, that's the Labor side. Uh, and, and on the coalition side, it's, it's also about ideology and about their close relationship with the fossil fuel companies, which, you know, donate large amounts of money. The Morrison government persists in, you know, its commitment to, quote, gas-fired recovery, unquote, and, of course, there's a substantial rump in the government that continues to, to argue for the development of new coal power generation. On Tuesday, the Nationals Party Senator, Matt Canavan, did it again. He released a backbench policy paper calling for the government to fund the construction of some new coal-fired power stations, including one, and this is significant given what I just told you about Joel Fitzgibbon, in the Hunter Valley, in Joel Fitzgibbon's seat. So that adds a little pressure to Labor. And so, bottom line... The Australian government is dragging the chain. The opposition seems to be increasingly dragging the chain. Fortunately, I guess, we're seeing big corporations and big money, as I mentioned before, 
have read the writing on the wall and, and they're looking at what's happening overseas and they're starting to take some action themselves. Let's talk a bit more about that, particularly what is happening here in Australia in terms of, of corporations and, and investment in clean energy. The, the next wave in the renewable clean energy space is hydrogen. The first thing to know is that hydrogen can be burnt as a fuel and it produces only water as a result, so it produces no greenhouse gases. The alternative to hydrogen is natural gas, which Australia exports in very large quantities, which is essentially methane, which does produce carbon dioxide when burnt. At the, at the moment, it's a more expensive option than using natural gas, but the cost is coming down very rapidly. And within maybe five years or so, it will be cost competitive to make hydrogen from renewable energy and to use that instead of gas. And when that happens, game over, mate. And the shift will be lightning fast. Forget 2050. Zero emissions will begin to happen overnight. That's how capitalism works. That's a quote from Andrew Forrest, who's the billionaire chairman of Fortescue Metals. And it comes from his Boyer lecture given last week. The solution is hydrogen. The purest source of energy in the world and one that could replace up to three quarters of global emissions. In Forrest's assessment, and he's been looking into this for the past year or thereabouts, the green hydrogen market could generate revenues of at least $12 trillion by 2050, bigger than any industry we have now. And Australia, with characteristic luck, is sitting on everything it needs to be the world leader, but it has to act fast. And so Forrest is investing billions of dollars in his vision, which is turning his company's iron ore into green steel, using hydrogen in the process, generating the hydrogen from new renewables. And he's not the only one. Billions of dollars more are being invested, mostly in northern Australia, to harvest wind and solar power, turn it into energy, either for domestic use or export, either just as electricity or as hydrogen. So it's becoming clear, having ambitious targets for greenhouse gas reductions is not necessarily a threat to jobs or to the economy because there will be massive investment in clean energy. And that, of course, will create jobs. So says Twiggy Forrest. So say all the governments of Europe and East Asia. So says Joe Biden. So say all the corporate investors who are redirecting billions of dollars out of dirty energy into clean energy. You know, it's, it's the reverse of what the Morrison government campaigned on at the last election. Mike, thanks for your time today. It's great to be back talking about climate with you. Nice to be back. Thank you. You can read Mike Seckham's reporting in the Saturday paper every week. As a listener of 7am, you can subscribe to the Saturday paper for half price. It's a great way to support the show and fund the independent journalism that drives it. A half price digital subscription works out to less than a dollar a week. Go to thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash podcast offer to subscribe. This special offer for 7am listeners is available until the end of February. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, The Saturday Paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup made in collaboration with Fresco for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper.
no hot takes. Also in the news today, Myanmar's military has seized power in the country after detaining the elected leader Aung San Suu Kyi yesterday. Myanmar State Television reported that the move was in response to alleged election fraud and that the military would take control for one year. The moves have been condemned internationally, including by the Australian government. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison has announced that all Australians will be able to access the COVID-19 vaccine by October this year. Scott Morrison said that the first vaccines were due to arrive in Australia later this month. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.